You ever watch this guy on television? You all were not telling the truth, and you should not be trusted. Congressman Matt Gates, thank you for what you yeah. did for your country tonight. Be offended with the Democratic whip, not House Republicans. Like a machine, Matt Gates. Welcome to Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Let's talk about the news. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel in our fight against coronavirus? Pfizer CEO Dr. Albert Bula was on CNBC's Squawk Box with great news about a vaccine. Take a listen. It was exactly what you can imagine. Uh, uh, it is a, a great day for science. It is a great day for humanity when you realize that uh, your vaccine has a 90% effectiveness. That's overwhelming. Uh, you understand that uh, the hopes of billions of people and millions and uh, businesses and hundreds of governments that were felt on our shoulders, now we can uh, credibly try them. I think we can see light at the end of the tunnel. So Dr. Fauci originally told us that a 50 to 60% success rate for a vaccine would be a winner. I know a lot of these drug companies were aiming for that 75% number. And so if this vaccine developed by Pfizer has a 90% success rate, that's really something. That's really something that would be great for our country, for our businesses, for our economy. I do note that the CDC is indicating that if you've had the virus and get the antibodies, you could have an immunity that's three to four times longer than even that of the vaccine. I recently tested positive for the antibodies. Some in the Washington media put out that I had tested positive for coronavirus, but I am virus-free and antibody-full. So we will look forward to additional news from Pfizer. I did note that Donald Trump Jr. and Senator Ted Cruz took some exception with the timing of this announcement. You know, it is just days after the election, and now we get this breakthrough news that the coronavirus might not really be the big challenge to our country going forward that some had perceived and that some had even messaged during the election. The coronavirus was central to the Biden campaign's message. You know, Donald Trump was, I think, making a broader argument about economic success and the need for our country to have higher wages and better jobs, things that really went beyond just a, a very narrow focus on coronavirus. I certainly uh, am hopeful that we get a vaccine no matter how, no matter when, because I know what it will mean to America. But if any of these companies had good news on the vaccine and they held it for the sake of politics, that would be despicable. And it would also have some pretty serious SEC implications. If folks were sitting on good news because of politics, uh, that could impact stock prices, that could impact the type of information that di different investor classes had. So uh, I certainly hope there were none of those shenanigans. Uh, I, I also noted that uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA official, saying that distribution of this vaccine could happen to those with the greatest need for it as early as December. You know, wow. I, I know there are a lot of distribution challenges for anything that will be needed to the extent that the coronavirus vaccine will be needed. But you know, you heard a lot of these talking heads and so-called experts saying, oh, you know, it won't be until well into 2021 that there's any real availability for the vaccine. And here now uh, you're starting to see a lot more optimism. 
Again, I hope that's not a consequence of uh, elections. I hope it's a consequence of developments and innovation and America rising to the challenge and defeating the coronavirus. The Trump administration, Operation Warp Speed, they all deserve a lot of credit. Pfizer would not be in the position to give this news to the country if not for the Herculean efforts of the Trump administration uh, and of those involved in Operation Warp Speed. So congratulations to those involved in this breakthrough development. We hope it means a lot of good for a lot of our fellow Americans. Georgia, Georgia. That old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. But so does the 2020 election cycle. Georgia's on the minority leader's mind. Here's Chuck Schumer talking about his ambitions in the state. Now we take Georgia and then we change the world. Now we take Georgia and then we change America. If President Trump ends up losing the state of Georgia, if we've put ourselves in a posture where a special election for the United States Senate in Georgia is all that stands between our great country and socialism, then we have Georgia Governor Brian Kemp to blame. I'll give you the background, I'll lay out the story, but you will see how Governor Kemp has put us in a position where we've really now got to go fight for our country in Georgia, and I think the outcome could have been very different for the President and for the United States Senate. So it all starts back when Georgia U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson resigns. He leaves the Senate. That gives Governor Kemp the ability to make an appointment. Now, President Trump wanted him to appoint Doug Collins. He made that pretty clear, but it is, of course, the Georgia governor's prerogative to appoint whoever he wants. So instead, he appoints Kelly Loeffler, who's now the current senator from Georgia. But somewhat surprisingly, Doug Collins runs anyway. Now, Governor Kemp could have set a primary election for Republicans between his pick, Kelly Loeffler, and Doug Collins. They could have had that primary, resolved that issue, and then there would have been one Republican running against one Democrat. That would be Raphael Warnock in this November election that we just concluded. But instead, Governor Kemp set this election to be a jungle election between Collins and Loeffler and Raphael Warnock. Now, what was the practical political impact of Brian Kemp making that decision? Well, first, it meant that Loeffler didn't have to run against Collins facing only Republicans. And at the time, Senator Loeffler and her team believed that they needed every day possible and every million possible to beat Doug Collins among Republicans because at the early stage of that race, Doug Collins was beating Loeffler very handily among Republicans. So that was one practical impact is that it gave Kelly the ability to claw back, spend a lot of money, and then face Collins in an electorate that wouldn't just be Republicans. But here's the second and far more significant impact. If you go look at the messaging in this race, Collins and Loeffler are both just campaigning for their share of the Trump vote. None of the tens of millions of dollars that were spent on the Republican side in that U.S. Senate race were at all spent on finding low propensity Republicans, new voters, persuadable Democrats or independents to come our way. The whole deal was that Loeffler and Collins were trying to appear the most loyal to the president and the most capable to execute on his agenda. That left Raphael Warnock like 
on the basketball court scoring uncontested layups throughout the entire election. It gave Raphael Warnock the ability to go and register new voters, find new voters, engage low propensity Democrat voters and turn them out. And in a race that's so close in an election with such razor thin margins, this is the kind of stuff that can make the difference. You know, if we had had Kemp set the Collins and Leffler primary for before November, and if one of them had come out of that race and the entire Georgia Republican Party could have unified behind Senator Perdue and behind whoever the nominee was between Collins and Leffler, I believe Donald Trump would have won the state of Georgia outside the margin of fraud. I believe Perdue likely would have nudged over 50%. And I believe that you would have likely seen Warnock knocked off by either Leffler or Collins. But you see the selfishness of Governor Kemp, the singular focus to help Kelly Loeffler over President Trump, over the Republican Party, has now put us in a position where quite literally some special election that we're going to have in Georgia is all that stands between us and socialism. I can tell you this, nothing forges unity like desperation. I campaigned for Doug Collins in this last election cycle, but I'll do everything possible to endorse and elect Senator Perdue and Kelly Loeffler because I know what happens if you get Joe Biden, a Democrat Senate, and Nancy Pelosi or someone even more radical, even more left-wing as Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. They will use the power far more effectively than Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell did during the initial years of the Trump administration, if they are given that opportunity. Now, we hope they're not given that opportunity. We're going to campaign hard to see that it's not the case. But we are only in this position with our backs against the wall in Georgia, with the president not so decisively having won the state that he's outside the margin of fraud, because it was more important for Brian Kemp to support Kelly Loeffler and to give her the best chance to beat Doug Collins than it was to actually keep Georgia red for the president and to keep Georgia's Senate delegation Republican. It's very sad that Brian Kemp was selfish, and now we've got to go to Georgia and we've got to fight. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. If in fact Joe Biden is inaugurated the 46th president of the United States, and I still think there are questions before the courts that could impact that potential eventuality, what would be Joe Biden's first big move? It's a question pondered by FoxNews.com's Lucas Manfredi, and I'm reminded that when George W. Bush was initially elected, he used that first time period in office to federalize education through the No Child Left Behind Act. And Barack Obama utilized his initial time in office to federalize health care through Obamacare. And President Trump seemed to break the trend of wanting to seize power in Washington and spend a heck of a lot more money on things. He instead passed a tax cut to rescue and reinvigorate the American economy and was pretty effective in doing just that. And so what will Joe Biden do to potentially grow the power of government if he's inaugurated? In this Fox News article I cited, they talk about a national mask mandate as a result of coronavirus taking the power away from our local communities and our states to determine when a mask might be appropriate, taking that power away from the individual, utilizing the central authority of Washington, D.C. to tell everyone to wear a mask. But I actually believe that 
the Biden ambitions would be far more expansive than what this Fox News piece contemplates. There's no question that in you know the initial hours of a potential Biden administration, they're focusing heavily on coronavirus. I mean, it's really what he's talking about. It's what his campaign focused on. And the initial meetings Joe Biden seems to be in seem to be all about coronavirus. I believe Joe Biden would use coronavirus as a veneer to enact a lot of the very socialist policies that the left has been pushing for. Universal basic income. I could very easily see uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats getting maybe enough Republicans to support the notion of a coronavirus relief package that makes permanent the stimulus checks. Depleting ambition in our country, reducing the incentive for work, making our money less sound, making our debt less affordable. But they could do it. They could say coronavirus is the reason that we now need permanent stimulus checks to people at all times. Now, I supported stimulus checks where they were appropriate to bridge the gap for our fellow Americans whose jobs had been deemed illegal. But making them permanent doesn't make them a bridge to a brighter future. I think that would be an anchor around our country. It would drag us down to just take the position that everyone here whether they're legal or illegal, would get a check. And by the way, that is the incarnation of the stimulus as per the Nancy Pelosi Heroes Act passed out of the House of Representatives that I voted against. I cannot support any system that gives stimulus payments to people who are not here legally. That cheapens the rule of law in our country. It creates an incentive for people to violate our laws and come here illegally. And it's unfair to Americans who are following the rules, working hard, trying to get through this pandemic, to force them to pay for stimulus checks for people who are not in our country legally. Is the coronavirus going to be the Trojan horse vehicle for Joe Biden to get his public option? Right now, I see that there are a lot of private healthcare entities that have really risen to the occasion. I mean, there's a reason in America the death rate was pretty low relative to the rest of the world in dealing with coronavirus. There's a reason why no one who needed a ventilator didn't get a ventilator in this country. There was historic cooperation and mobilization between the Trump administration and the private sector to meet the needs of our country. A public option could be devastating to the private sector healthcare system in America that has innovated, that has developed solutions, and that has worked to ensure that where Americans needed emergent care, they got that care. So the public option could be not a standalone bill. It could be something that isn't given its own dignity. It could be tucked into a potential coronavirus relief package. It is my expectation that the very first legislative push from Joe Biden, if in fact he is sworn in as president, will be coronavirus, but it will be coronavirus with a lot of ornaments, a lot of bells and whistles, and they could sound a lot like socialism. The Huskies of the University of Connecticut are hunkering down as a result of coronavirus sending their students home. The University of Connecticut is suspending their in-person academic instruction at their main campus and telling students they'll see them in the spring semester. And the rationale does seem a little strange. Listen to the justification for this shutdown, the rationale, 
to suspend the in-person instruction from the university. We know that when people leave and come back, they usually bring the virus with them. So by having students go home for Thanksgiving and remain home, we'll be able to contain them within their own families and not risk spreading the disease through travel. This seems a bit odd because no matter when the students are coming back, they're going to have to travel. So if they come back in the spring, they're going to be engaged in precisely the same travel that they would have been engaged in had they come back for finals at the end of the fall semester. So it seems bizarre that with a positivity rate on the campus that is less than 1%, that you would have this type of very draconian response. There's tremendous value in the college and university setting just from being around your fellow students, being around your professors, being around teacher's assistants, engaging in the extracurricular activities that universities offer. I don't believe the scientific evidence justifies the shutting down of universities where young people need to be developing and learning and preparing for their next stage in life. So let's hope that what we see from the University of Connecticut does not become a national trend. After talking to the governor of Florida, I'm pretty sure our students here are going to have the option to be in class, to learn, to develop, and to grow as the next great generation of Americans. America must keep our eye on China as they potentially prepare for war and major power projection. Nationalinterest.org's Chris Osborne has the story. China wants four aircraft carriers armed with stealth fighters. China is sending a fighter jet and helicopter armed aircraft carrier to the South China Sea as part of an overt demonstration to show that its first indigenously built aircraft carrier, the Shandong, is ready for war. While there are still many unknowns with China's first home-built carrier, it does appear to massively increase the country's power projection possibilities bringing new Pacific area and international threat possibilities to the United States Navy. One of these threat possibilities includes the possibility that China is now building a new threat carrier-launched variant of its fifth-generation J-31 stealth fighter to rival the United States Marine Corps' F-35B and the Navy's F-35C. China is getting very aggressive in the South China Sea. It's important that the United States fund and support Taiwan, that we encourage our allies in the region to push back against Chinese hegemony. This is the fight that matters for who will win the 21st century. USA Today's Wayne Washington and Chris Prasad have a story out about the Florida Democratic flop. Now, I talked earlier in the podcast about what was going on in the state of Georgia, and really, Florida and Georgia are the tale of two trajectories and the tale of two leaders. In the 2018 election cycle, both Ron DeSantis and Brian Kemp started in their Republican primaries well behind more established political figures in their states. Both Ron DeSantis and Brian Kemp earned the endorsement of President Trump in their primaries. Both then went on to win their primaries by very large margins. And then both Ron DeSantis and Brian Kemp went on to win general elections by very, very slim margins. Since that time, where really the paths were quite similar, the paths have deviated substantially. Ron DeSantis has unified the Republican Party in Florida. There aren't any anti-DeSantis Republicans in this state. He went to build 
a party that registered a ton of new voters, that built big margins, that made broad appeal to Hispanics, African Americans, Asian Americans. And Ron DeSantis then saw Florida have a real turn to the red column, not only going the president's direction by almost three times the margin, uh, it went by the president's direction in the last election, but also we picked up two congressional seats, we picked up seats in the state legislature, uh, and it really has been a successful party-building enterprise. Uh, meanwhile, in the state of Georgia, they're having these other problems. Now, in the USA Today piece, there are a few specific reasons why Florida seems to be doing particularly well under the DeSantis leadership. Hispanics, new residents. You know, a lot of the new residents that are moving into Florida are escaping Democrat-run states with poor economic policies, with high taxes, with high cost of living. And so because we've had almost unified Republican control of the government in Florida for a political generation, now the red policies, low taxes, uh, good investment in education, right-sized regulation, pro-business climate, easy to start a business, easy to run a business, you see, those things have then attracted people who are more likely to vote Republican. Now, they're not all Republicans. Matter of fact, a lot of them are not registered with any major party, but they're voting red. Another factor in the USA Today piece is just enthusiasm. You know, the Republican Party was a more joyous experience during this last election cycle. Flags, rallies, camaraderie. You know, the Democrats were walking around all the time talking about a deadly virus. And while, you know, obviously we need a strong approach to that, and we certainly see it through the advancements we've seen through Pro Project Warp Speed, you could talk about something other than the virus to try to provide vision to the country and to give people a sense of hope that better days are ahead. And Republicans seem to do that better than Democrats, according to this piece. And it concludes with the question as to whether or not Florida is a bellwether anymore. We have a Republican governor, very popular. We have two Republican senators. We have a Republican legislature. And the only Democrat elected to statewide office is the agriculture commissioner. She's a good friend of mine. Matter of fact, I think she does a decent job as the agriculture commissioner in specific areas of helping our farmers. But I don't believe that there is a strong, robust Democratic Party in Florida making a compelling case to people, particularly because so many Floridians are just a generation or two removed from the type of socialism that we see espoused by the squad and other national Democratic leaders. So I'm proud to be a Florida man, glad to be representing this great state in the United States Congress. I'm proud of the work I did in the state legislature as the Ways and Means chairman to really build out an economic strategy that put our state on a path to success. And in Florida, no matter what happens with the rest of the country, we're gonna do all we can to embrace economic freedom, to embrace the power of our citizens to be able to live their own lives, and we're gonna keep the good times rolling in the Sunshine State. Thanks for listening to Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you're updated with each of our daily episodes, and it really helps us get our message out and share our content with more people. If you'll take just a moment and give us a five-star rating on iTunes or a comment or review on any of the listening platforms you choose. We hope you're back with us tomorrow. We'll be here with more hot takes. <laughs>